0: Hey, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's Wednesday, and uh, that makes it uh, April 13th around here. Bright and early in the morning on uh, Doug Paget in Minneapolis, where it's, you know, just after 10 a.m. Dan Dietrich there in South Bend, Indiana. Sure, it's early. It's still morning, 11. But, it's early for me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Er- early for the musician's heart. Uh, but Andre Henry, you're up even earlier, because it's 8 a.m. out there in L.A. where you are, and uh, really glad to have you there. So those of you that are following along in the live stream... Tell us where you are, what time it is, and uh, where you find yourself. And in a lot of ways, you know, what time is it is some of the conversation we're gonna be having today. Um, There's a question for us about, uh, is it time to wake up to some issues? Many things you're gonna find familiar to this podcast. You know, here we ask questions about how can we be engaged in the common good, especially those people who find themselves in a change moment from their uh, their own background, maybe from their own history, maybe people who found themselves in one political religious identity and now are trying to find a new place and a new way to be. And one of the most important parts of that journey is to find others that are along the pathway with you. And uh, so Andre, so glad to have you here. Uh, Andre is a musician, he's an author, an activist. We'll get into all of that. Uh, but for now, we'll just say good morning. Nice to have you. Thanks, uh, thanks for chatting with us today.
1: It's such a pleasure to be here with you guys.
0: So you've written this book uh, called All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of books. Uh, I, I've, I've written them myself. I've had to be in title meetings with publishers. Yes. Titles are sometimes a thing that the author gets to own. Sometimes they're something that somebody else does. Yeah. Before we get into the content of the book uh, and why you wrote it, tell us about this title, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. What's yeah. uh, Where does that come from? Sure. Um, So the book comes from
1: or came from an open letter that I wrote to a lot of white friends that I once considered close, some I even considered family. Mm -hmm. And they'd been online saying things like, you know, oh, Andre's a racist. Andre hates white people. Because by then, for years, I had been um, writing songs and and articles and making videos and all this other kind of stuff to raise awareness of, about um, systemic racism, especially in the case of police brutality. You know the that we were watching in the heyday of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I decided, you know, it's not fair for people to make that accusation without like real. Proof, like without a without a receipt. Where did I say that? You know, where did I show me the tweet? Show me the text message. Show me the the blog. And so I decided that I would write them a receipt of my love. And so I mm-hmm. wrote an open letter to them called "To All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep," and that blog went viral. And next thing you know, a, a literary agent was had reached out to me and felt that there was a book in there and. You you know how it goes from there. <laughs> sure,
0: yeah, that's, that's how it should go. I, I, you know, that's great, right? You you raise your voice a little, and then there's people who invite you to 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 say some more, and mm-hmm. to keep to keep saying it. Is so is that phrase like when you used it in the open letter? Was it, hey, I wanted to keep you white friends, and I wanted to bring you on this journey with me, but I tried to keep you and I couldn't, yeah. or is it? I just can't keep you all around anymore. Like, it's just, it's, there's something that I have to shape shift in order to maintain this friendship that I can't keep anymore. I've, I've wondered as I looked at the title, like, which, yeah. which movie? Yeah,
1: it's, it's a little bit of both, you know, it, there definitely was, and, and in the book, you see this in the early chapters, you know, me trying to, explain things to my white friends and trying to help them understand what's going, you know, what my life is like as a Black person in in America or in this anti-Black world. And in that way, I was trying to keep them. Um, But their responses, their refusal to listen and their refusal to be open just made it untenable because I was determined, you know, and I I am determined now, but at, at the time I was determined to figure out, how can I participate more actively and more strategically in the struggle for black freedom in this world? And there's just no way for me to do that, you know, with people who are telling me things like racism isn't real or it's hateful to do that, or Christians shouldn't be doing that or, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, In the book you talk about, you know, growing up
2: with a lot of these white friends and white church spaces and mm-hmm. then this disconnect starts to grow when you start to talk about things like Ferguson and Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you talk about how politely you're engaging with your your white friends, and there's yeah. still this rejection. Yeah. But then you go on to talk about the need to feel okay with being angry, and oh, yeah. uh, you describe this isn't a new phenomenon it's almost like a generational gaslighting of black americans where rage and anger has always been suppressed can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah for sure um so i the the concept of racial gaslighting is a big theme in the book and um you know basically one of those tactics um, of gaslighting is denial. You know, literally, you are saying there is a problem, and and the offender or or the folks who are supporting, you know, that situation say, "Oh, no, no, there is there's no problem." Yeah. You know, it's basically a n- uh huh argument, right? Yeah. Like, and um, one of and one of those tactics is also getting black people to suppress our anger because the whole point is to say that. Um, or the the whole point of gaslighting is for the gaslighter to get the target to accept the gaslighter's version of the story, accept the gaslighter's version of reality. And so, if your body is telling you that something's not right here, you know, which our bodies are very good at, our bodies have a technology to tell us that, you know, and in fact. The way that the body knows and communicates thing is much faster than the executive part of our brain that gets to rationalize things, which is exactly where the oppressive system wants to keep things. It's like because we can rationalize all kinds of things right? and we can reframe all kinds of things. We can reframe stories. Sociologist Brian Martin talks about how one of the premier tactics of oppressors is to reframe things. right? So wh- black rage is the body's way of saying this is not right. I should not be treated this way. I deserve better than this. You know, things ought not to be this way. Mm -hmm. That's a dangerous, uh, that's a dangerous kind of knowing in our bodies to the people who want to keep us, who want to keep things the way that they are. Right. And so they say, no, you have no reason to be angry or at at its, at its worst, you know, uh, basically fix your face, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Uh, fix your face or else. Right. And so I argue in the book, that you know black anger is legitimate for those reasons that i said that it is this the body's way of telling us that something is not right and we need that in order for us to lean into our struggle for freedom because the fact that we do feel that says okay your body's working right that's a healthy response that you're having right yeah. um and also on the other side of that is what many call your vision of our vision of tomorrow if if your body is telling you things ought not to be this way, that means that you probably have some idea of how things ought to be. And that's one of those important things that we need in order to pursue social progress because uh, we need to be. How, can we pres- how do we know what we're pursuing? How do we know what we're fighting for if we don't have a vision of how things ought to be?
0: Yeah. You know, I think it's powerful that you're framing these, uh, this call and these ideas in, in memoir f- fashion, like in your own story. Mm-hmm. For a lot of reasons, I think it's helpful. We just don't know each other's stories. It also, you know, connects with people in a really yeah. different way. Can you tell us a bit more of the story? And in the description of the book, um, it, it says that uh, I'm going to read the quote from the from the description. When the rallying cry "Black Lives Matter" was heard across the world in 2013, Andre Henry was one of the millions for whom the movement caused a political awakening and a rupture in some of his closest relationships. With white people. Can you talk a bit about that? Like how you were thinking about many of these same issues, what happened in 2013, kind of what was going on in you and with you and in your own social setting and in, the, and in and society as,
1: as a whole? For sure. For sure. And I think this is a great question because I think that well, I don't think I, I know. Like sometimes people read, you know, the things that I have to say about uh, the scope of the problem that we're in and what it will take to solve it. And they go, man, you sound so extreme, you know? And it's, <laughs> and it's like, you know, you think that I was born, you know, like I came out of the womb with my fist in the air, you know? Um, but I really was a very patriotic kid. I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, mm. where where the legacy of the Confederacy is very strong, um, but no one wants to talk about it. And so, you know, I received the same miseducation about race and racism that anybody else would growing up where lost cause ideology is so strong. Right. So, I had this sense that like anybody else, America is the greatest nation in the world. It's a place where people get what they deserve, you know, a land of opportunity, a paragon of democracy, leader of the free world, all that stuff. And at the same time, my, I lived next to a man who claimed to be a part of the Ku Klux Klan, who pulled a gun on my brother for walking our dog through the neighborhood. And he mm-hmm. was the pastor of the church at the top of the road. Yeah. So, I knew that racism still existed, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I thought that was racism, right? Like that, th- my next door neighbor. And at the same time, my body would tell me you know, would I mean I would notice that okay, and sometimes teachers seem to be a little bit harsher with black kids, and you know when we walk into the, the grocery store or the hair or the beauty supply, you know the 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 store clerks you know kind of follow us around a little bit, or or the police seem a bit more sp- suspicious of us. I would notice those things, and then you know some white adult would tell me, "Don't play the race card. Racism is such a serious charge." Da da da. You know, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So for a long time, there was kind of this cognitive dissonance around these things, you know, where it was like, on the one hand, I know that racism racism is a problem. You know, when Trayvon, when the thing happened with Trayvon Martin, there was something in my body that said, I know that that something like that is more likely to happen to me. You huh. know, mm-hmm. and at the same time, always trying to give America the benefit of the doubt. Well, as... You know, Trayvon turned to uh, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, K- Ricky, uh, Rikia Boyd, Corinne Gaines, Tatiana Jefferson, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Holding that cognitive dissonance. Just mm-hmm. became impossible, you know, because um, as well as weighing that against my own experiences, you know, of racial profiling that I experienced after I left Stone Mountain in college, you know, anything from being like accused of stealing my own bike at college because the security guards said I don't, quote, look like a student or okay. uh, Up to the many times that I've been stopped and searched by police officers who were just sure that I must have drugs and weapons on me. You know, Um, it's not even a question. They're like, not, not, are you carrying any, but not, are you carrying any, but where are they? You know? Mm -hmm. So, weighing those things against mine and my and the 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 witness of history, the witness of my neighbors, there was just no way to hold those things together anymore. so the the the, the watershed moment was Philando Castile's uh, when Philando Castile we watched Philando Castile bleed to death on Facebook live, I had already begun speaking up a little bit, you know with people in my immediate social circle mm-hmm. some of the people I write about in the book, Uh, subtly posting some things on Facebook or social media. But that day that I watched Philando Castile bleed to death, the day after I watched Alton Sterling get shot, you know, by local police officers in Louisiana, I said, you know, enough is enough. I've got, I'm tired of sitting here and feeling helpless and powerless. And I have to figure out some way to invest my body in the struggle for black freedom.
0: My wife's a big fan of the of a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. I'm familiar with that? It's about yes. generational trauma and so on. Is that have you are you familiar with that book or with that idea of trauma? Because it's one of the ways to understand our society and the multiple traumas that inflict different people and different groups of people really mm-hmm. does start to explain a lot of our social struggles that we otherwise have difficulty wrapping Mm -hmm. our heads around. Yeah. Yeah. I have been reading the body keeps the score
1: actually. Um, And I've, I've not finished it, you know, but I, I do think that there is a lot of, I mean, obviously the author knows what they're talking about, but I see the, I see the resonance in what we're talking about here with, you know, systemic racism, you know, like, and so much of this does have to do with embodiment, you know, um, and paying attention to that. And I think that a huge part of the, or a, a, a weapon, of this racist you know domination is to keep us out of touch you know with our bodies especially black bodies right so there is this kind of i noticed a refusal of the white friends that i couldn't keep to really take in the violence that was inflicted on philando castile on michael brown you know it's like it didn't really it's like it didn't really sink in to them, you know like the trauma inflicted not just on Michael Brown but on that community you know and Ferguson on his family on his friends on his neighbors so there's one point in the book where I'm writing about Corinne Gaines who was killed by Baltimore police mm-hmm. and I didn't know this until I was writing a writing retelling her story but she actually knew Freddie Gray. Freddie Mm. Gray was her neighbor, you know? And it really made me think about, wow, like her seeing her neighbor killed by the police was something that radicalized her even more, you know, because she grew up in a police family. Um, And it also ties back into the, the, the question about rage and some of the, the opposition that i that i encountered around this was that a lot of white people that i was in conversation with then i don't really talk with white people like this anymore you know folks who were just trying to gaslight me about racism but at the time they didn't seem to understand or maybe they weren't trying to understand that when we see uprisings like Ferguson, when we see uprisings like the ones in Baltimore and all that kind of stuff, that it is a response to the ongoing trauma of colonization and white supremacist domination. You had this sort of awakening, this apocalypse. You decided you had
2: to do something. And Mm -hmm. one of the things you did was haul around a hundred pound rock Mm -hmm. covered in names. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. This kind of act
1: of, Ah uh, performance art protest, can you talk a little bit about that? yeah, for sure. um that was a few weeks after philando's death, and I had resolved i would i would invest my body in some way in the in the struggle for black freedom and with in a few weeks, I had like a a vision you could say you know of me doing this like me with a a large white boulder that had you know all of these um racial injustices written all over mm. it. And the names of folks uh, killed in police encounters and all that kind of stuff. And I felt like I was supposed to do it. I felt compelled to do it. And so I did. I, I asked my friends on Facebook if they knew where I could find a boulder You know, and folks, I don't, you know, of course, folks didn't think serious, didn't take it seriously at first. So, you know, I get people, you know, making rock jokes and, and then others who are like, you could go out to the desert, or you could go out to the beach. And I'm like, both of those things are far away. But there's a guy, a classmate of mine from Fuller Seminary that lived 10 minutes away, and he was like, how big? And so I knew that that meant that he had at least <laughs> yeah, one. A variety, a variety. apparently. Yeah. Right. He did have a variety. He had a... he. In, in some ways, it, it was kind of like a... Um, yeah, he had a collection of boulders that had been strewn <laughs> across his yard, basically, and I, I chose the heaviest one that I could carry, and I, I painted it white. and uh, They they helped me get a a cart for it because it was so heavy from Home Depot and. I wrote everything that I could remember from that vision and that I knew of on that boulder, and I, I took it everywhere with me for several months—about about six months total. Um, well, about four months I took it everywhere with me, and then for about the last two months, I took it. On, I just took it to church because mm-hmm. I was uh, playing the piano at several different churches, and someone had really challenged me to think through who really needs to hear this. And at the time, I, I felt like it was—I felt like it was churches. It just seemed like. I mean, Christianity is so implicated in this global system of racism yeah. and at the same time has a book that says that the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as as yourself. Uh, so I figured that would be the place to take it. What was the reaction when you rolled this boulder into churches where you're you're leading worship at these churches, right? Like yeah, I was leading worship I was on stage, so I'd lug this boulder on stage at church and play the piano. <laughs> um, and I also you know ended up I had another vision and was just for a funeral and all over my suit jacket was written the names of people who had been uh, uh, suffered police brutality and so I did that too and on the back was stop killing us. so like I lugged this boulder onto stage dressed for a funeral with the names and hashtags of people who had been killed by the police all over my body. And, surprisingly not many people said anything like it was very it was very rare that anyone said anything to me just ignored it yeah pretty much you know Mm -hmm. pretty much um except for one comment i wrote i wrote about in the book someone said something real insensitive like read the back of my my jacket that says stop killing us and said oh stop killing us with laughter huh and um, (laughs) i didn't understand the response but he did come back and apologize later i think somebody might have said to him like somebody might have like, they, hey, that might not have been cool yeah, yeah you
0: know but that kind of thing to it fits in this long tradition of cultural change and spiritual political societal protest and you mm-hmm. think of the the stories that we read, from the hebrew narratives of the prophets yeah. laying on mm-hmm. one laying on aside for a year or people yeah. calling things or you know living in a desert or eating certain foods yeah. shaving their yeah. heads like these kinds of things are alternatives to mm-hmm. call for, uh, alternative ways to call people to change yes. short of violent revolution and there's right. been a big debate around this issue in the United States, you know, that really goes back to before the founding of this of this country about what do we do about the versions of enslavement in, in the United States? And one option has been armed rebel uprisings. Yes, creating alternative communities for uh, Black Americans to live in. Uh, yeah. To to integrate into society with societal change, like there's been a range of choices, and they range from violent uh, to nonviolent, and they yeah. range from don't talk about it to talk about it all the time. Like we've just tried every version of all this stuff, right? It seems like. And so, before we get into the, does is anything actually going to work? <laughs> you've chosen a particular. You've chosen a particular path, which yeah. uh, we talked about some before we came on, of being in this tradition of deep activism, disruptive activism from a nonviolent tradition side. Can, can you talk about that? Because this thing you're describing, it, it, right? It's whimsical, but it's also it's meant to make people say something about it. Like they're not supposed to just sit there or have to awkwardly crack a joke. You know, that's, it's, it's supposed to call for people to do something.
1: Yeah. You know, so when I started, so that, that day that I said I have to invest my body in the struggle for black freedom, I did not really know a whole lot about how societies change. I didn't know a whole lot about social progress and I didn't know where to start. I I had heard people say all the time that there are only two ways that societies change and that is either economic disruption or through bloodshed. And that was all, I had heard people say that a lot. And so that's where I was sitting that day, that summer 2016. And I decided that day that I needed to learn about the civil rights movement, because, you know, there are no more whites only signs up in restaurants and over water fountains and bathrooms and stuff like that. So clearly, they were onto something. And so I've embarked on that journey. And I've read so many books about nonviolent struggle, and civil resistance and you know, I started with, I started as, I started, you know, with like Thoreau, with civil disobedience, and then I started meeting like living revolutionaries, you know, um, like Sergei Popovich and uh, Bob Helvey and and others mm-hmm. who have actually helped in other struggles around the world. I actually, you know, <laughs> I remember, uh, yeah, I just kind of bothered them until they realized that I am one of their students and now we're friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, And so I'll say that I looked into that for the reasons that I said, it seemed like it worked. And what I found in studying nonviolent civil resistance is that there is this misconception that violence is the strongest force in the world. Right. And there's, there's nothing that can really compete with it. And I'm never going to say that violence never accomplishes anything because, we live in America, and this this nation was accomplished by a a a level of violence that is literally unfathomable. Mm-hmm. You know the millions the millions of indigenous people and African indigenous people that have been killed in order to bring us into this society is just we'll never be able to wrap our brains around it mm-hmm. anyway. But <laughs> I was, I was glad to find that violence is not the only option because I mean, not only just because I would make a terrible soldier in a revolutionary conflict, um, but also um, the means to launch that kind of rebellion, I just don't think is available to black people. You know, I don't think, I don't think it's realistic. Um, but what I found was for example the study from Erica Chenoweth and Maria J Stefan uh, that studies 627 conflict situations between 1900 and 2019 that and in that study they found that the nonviolent movements were twice as successful as armed struggles. Um, armed struggles had about a 25 percent chance of winning <laughs> and nonviolent struggles had about a 50 percent chance of winning They also found that consistently, just three and a half percent of any of those populations engaged in sustained, active, nonviolent struggle was enough to topple dictatorships, mm. to end totalitarian rule, to to break down oppressive laws and all that kind of stuff. Uh, reading Gene Sharp's material, who if you've never heard of Gene Sharp all out there, Gene Sharp. Is a, a giant in the study of nonviolent struggle and, and scholarship. I mean, he's just as important as Gandhi. Um, and uh, Gene Sharp, in his book *From Dictatorship to Democracy*, was writing about how some of these regimes would fall in as little as two weeks through nonviolent struggle. Oh. You know, now that's not all of them. I mean, oftentimes, you know, yep. it takes years, but I mean, that is also possible. And these things just made me so much so hopeful and help me to wrap my brain around some of the nuts and bolts of how the thing works. And that's what, that's what makes me such a, a huge believer in nonviolent civil resistance and why I'm kind of banging the drum for it.
0: So what, one of the big questions, you know, facing our age is w- what, what would it look like for a revolution of inclusion and love and full participation? What would that look like in a, in our society? There was a real sense among a lot of people, especially among white political liberals, yeah. that the middle 2000s, mm. especially the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and and other uh, societal shifts and changes were signposts that told us that we had traveled someplace new, that we were in yeah. some new social territory. Yeah. You know, and, every, and 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 it's easy to wrap it up in people saying, well, we live in a post-racial America, and then people just mocking that. But but there was something there was a sense that okay, we've we've marked something, we've we've moved along. Some people feel like, boy, the the goalposts or the marking posts keep getting moved, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, what's next? And I hear this a lot from people who feel worn out, especially white Americans uh, who yeah. feel worn out by like, we're seriously, we're still talking about all this, all this race stuff. You know, they Mm -hmm. phrase it like that. And they're like, I mean, what more do you want? How how much, how far, right? This, this kind of thing. But it's a real, it's a real question, right? People are like, okay, what's it going to look like when you get up in the morning and you think, I've got a vision for, you know, a future, uh, you know, you, you have your own dream, Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. right Hopefully we don't tag ourselves you know to fifty year old dreams uh, only. Oh, right what what is your dream? what does that start to look like in, in your lifetime as you've now invested your time and, and and energy in this and and now you're one of the people that others gather around as you were gathering around you know activists and nonviolent people what and, and I think this is a this is a real notion now look I heard a phrase from a friend in, in activist work that said um, there's no Alarm clock loud enough to wake someone from a fake sleep. Mm. And the idea that, like, people have to wake up to certain ideas and alarms are going off and it's morning in America again, you know, we should be waking up to some of these issues. They're like, yeah, but a lot of people are fake sleeping. And (laughs) so the issue isn't ring the bell louder. They don't want to get up or they don't want to even show that they're going to wake up. So Granting that, mm-hmm. and I think you have a lot of comments about that, actually, in, in the book. Um, but for the people who really don't get it or know or imagine what a future would look like, yeah. Um, well, well, first of all, do you think there's enough of those people to fuss with? <laughs> uh, and, and, and what kind of future can you imagine? You know, uh,
1: one, of my, one of my core values is that the vision of tomorrow has to come from the people. And so something that I imagine and I, that I, that I, an idea I kind of toyed around with is that the American people have to elect themselves as president. And what that would look like, I think begins with us literally having conversations in our communities about what we imagine our communities would be like Mm -hmm. if we were successful you know in in launching this anti-racist revolution right but i can dream you know i i i dream of the end of a a police state in america i dream of you know our uh, a society that is based on the values of everyone has their needs met and everyone is worthy of having their needs mm-hmm. met right we all have a right to live and to a certain quality of life. So there's no withholding resources and all that kind of stuff because we, because we deem someone unworthy because oh they're poor, which first off, how did they get, how did they get that way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was all another conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Or because of, because of race or because of religion or sexual orientation, all that kind of stuff. Right. I dream of a world where uh, we rehabilitate people, you know, mm-hmm um instead of instead of using these punitive measures you know to address crime and where the root cra- root causes of what we call crime are at least minimized if not if not non-existent right um because we know that people re- resort to quote unquote criminal behavior because they don't have their needs met <laughs> right so um this for me this is like the racial wealth gap is closed right um, Health care is accessible to everyone. Education is, is accessible to everyone. Um, so, I mean, those are the things that come to mind for me when I think about these these things. But um, one more thing I'd add to that is Alex Vitale's book, The End of Policing, mm-hmm. he goes through all of the, the things that we claim that police do. You know, or that they keep us safe from, and why those things are not true. Breaks down all those myths. But he has a phrase in there that has really stuck with me, and he talks about how the alternative to the police state, the the alternative to policing, is actually a robust democracy.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Talk talk, talk more about that. That imagination is that because in a robust democracy, people carry responsibility. For- for one another differently and they don't need to pretend the reason they're safe is because there's some force yeah, out there that there keeping them safe from dangerous people?
1: Well, yeah, it's about us having strong communities where everyone has their needs met, right? Mm-hmm. So if if someone doesn't have a home, a house, right? They're living on the street. They, it's harder for them to find a job, right? Because um, first off, their primary question is, where do I sleep tonight? Right? So that's the thing. That's the mission that they're on every day. Where do I sleep? How do I eat? all those kinds of things, right? And if they're in that point of desperation, they might re- they might resort to des- desperate measures, right? Someone might steal food from a grocery store. Someone might break into someone's home to get something that they can sell or something like that, right? Um, and what's keeping us from providing homes for these people <laughs> or yeah. providing good jobs for these people? Oftentimes, it's, it's just culture. It's like stories mm-hmm. that we tell, right? In Finland, they've cut the unhoused population in half by wait for it, giving people homes, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> giving people how they homes do it. Days. Yeah, how <laughs> how they, they do it. Which is actually, which actually reminds me of a quote from Dr. King in one of his speeches where he said, "Listen, we found out that the most direct, the most the best way to deal with poverty is the most direct way, which is give people money. Right? Yeah. It's that kind of solution? Right? So they they cut the unhoused population half by giving people money. I'm sorry, by giving people homes. And what they found is that. These people do not just lie around in these in these free yeah. housings and all, and all that kind of stuff. That stability enables them to find a job. Right. Right. And that keeps and that lowers the recidivism rate, right? Because right. people are able to get stable. In America, that kind of solution is unthinkable to some yeah. people. Yeah. Because we operate under this narrative that if you're unhoused or if you're poor, it's your fault. Yeah. You did something. You did something wrong or you have some kind of bad habit that's keeping you from winning. What you need to do is pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, play this game. Well, we know that actually the game is rigged. It's like Brian Stevenson says, the opposite of poverty is justice, (laughs) not not wealth, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um So um, when I, when we talk about what a robust democracy looks like, I think that it is things like that, where we say, I think that my, my understanding of democracy is that we all have certain rights, right? Like, and Hmm. there's this level of equality that we're looking for. And we're trying to make sure that everyone has access to those rights. Well, having a home should be a human right. You know, a place to live should be a human right. Hmm. Having a living wage, a a livable wage should be a human right. You know, all those kinds of things. And and so yeah. I think that that's what I mean. And what we're doing instead is we're punishing people for being poor, letting the police abuse them, you know, having the police remove, you know, um, I'm going to stay on the unhoused topic for now um, because this is also a racial justice issue, right? Like the 8% of LA is black, 40% of the unhoused population in, in LA is black. It's mm. crazy disproportionate, Right. And what's happening is instead of making sure that these people have the human right of a place to live, the human right of shelter, like the police are just moving uh and I'm, I'm moving is a is a nice term. They're they're forcing unhoused people from different areas of the city. Like I live in Inglewood, where the Super Bowl is. We have this huge new SoFi Stadium, you know. Um, and you should just see the way that they basically just swept yeah. unhoused people out of the area for the Super Bowl. You know, and destroy their belongings and tents oh, the,
2: and uh, yeah, just what the level little of, they have, they take away. And
1: the level of cruelty that is leveled against these people is. Crazy, you know, it's immoral, you yeah. know. And so, basically, what we're saying is like we keep on using violence, state violence, systemic violence, police violence to answer questions that are actually just human rights issues, you know. Yeah. And and we would actually lessen the the so-called need for police if we would just actually be true to the values that this country says that it was founded on.
0: You know, it's just, uh, I'll just echo some of that for a moment. There's this thing where people say, look, if you just give people money and give them what they need to live on, they're just going to be lazy. Now, look, right. if, if, if that were true and for the people who hold to that view, We should go to every Ivy League school and make sure that all those kids living off their parents' money while they sit for four years or, uh, you know, don't just become lazy. No, there it's like, hey, if you get money for four years and you get to, you know, uh, be treated uh, like royalty, then you're going to be able to make something of yourself. In fact, some people with so much money will cheat to get their kids into a situation where they don't have to work and can be funded at an Ivy League education for four years. Or we'd run around for all the right. trust fund kids and say the most dangerous people in America are these trust fund kids that don't have to work because they're just gonna be lazy and are gonna be, you know, some sort of burden. We know that's not true. We don't say that right. to grandma yeah. when she retires. We don't say, Hey grandma, you <laughs> stopped working and now you're living off social security payments. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your W two grandma? Where are you? You know, we need you to start chipping in. Let's let's check right. let's check grandma's bank account and make sure she's producing. No. We don't we say also that don't to do that
1: with we also don't do that with billionaires or trillionaires, right? right? We, no, don't, we don't do it with any of these people. Yeah. Like these, these people don't clock in for work at 9 a.m. No.
0: <laughs> and, and so the idea that like, if you don't have a way, what, what people need are the resources to live on. You know, I, I like this idea that we can imagine a world where everyone has enough and no one needs to be afraid. Like that's not right. overly complicated. It's hard, hard to get to, but both fear. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons people have fears. So, yeah. so this economic narrative, it's always been tied to these racial issues, especially the racial issues of black people in America. Like, look, mm-hmm. ra- race is not only about black people, of course, there's racism, there's bigotry, right. there's culturalism, right. there's colorism, there's, there's Asian yeah. bias, there's all these things. But I think that in America, our country and a lot of our citizenry has a particularly uncomfortable relationship with black bodies. Oh, I absolutely. Think we know and absolutely. I think we fear, you know, uh James Baldwin has this very famous quote uh to be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. Yeah. Well, yeah, you
2: quote that in yeah. the book.
0: Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, and that's and every especially black man I know um uh, mm-hmm. f- feels feels that. And that's what scares white America, right? Yeah. They're like yeah. we've created a situation where we know we've done harm and now yeah. is there going to be some kind of payback? And this feels like what's at the root of the money distribution or education or anything like what happens is there going to be some payback at some point? Like I hear white Americans talk about this especially in the South where they're like well, uh-huh. what do you think the solution to this is going to be? They're going to come take our land. They're going to come take our farms. They, 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 you know, all this kind of language. Right. <laughs> uh, so, right. yes, yeah. uh, so, yeah, it is societal. It's also these fears that Americans have across the board. Everyone feels yeah. afraid of one another and each other. And then we tell ourselves a story that the reason bad things aren't happening is because the police are keeping bad things from happening. Yes. That's exactly. just not the, case. there's not enough police to stop bad things from happening. <laughs> right. I mean, just do the math. Of course not. Right. Um, right. And, and it's not just, you know, uh, our fears are not rooted in, in reality. Do you have thoughts about that particular black experience that, that, that the book chases out or that you're willing to, to share about today?
1: About white people's fear of like racial retribution.
0: Yeah. Or just the particular experiences of, Black ex- the, the particulars of black experience in America and how that impacts our our narrative of yeah. uh, just fear that, that that exists. Yeah, you know, I do I do write about this a
1: bit, you know, because that that idea that there's going to be some kind of black retribution for for this. I mean, it's an old lie, you know. It was partly. Mm-hmm. I believe that people were saying that around emancipation, you know, like, you know, this rumor emerged that, you know, now if you, if you, if you set these, if you set these captives free, like they're going to come and give us our just desserts. And all I would say to that is like, yo, like if that was going to happen, we've had enough time, you know, (laughs) like, like most, black most black people I know, uh don't have any desire you know to like yeah. wage some sort of race war right um in fact i think that i yeah i'm pretty sure that in, in like the intro or the or the first chapter i talk about how like White people in America are always talking about some looming race war, as though it didn't begin as mm. soon as you know white people started ferrying African people across the Atlantic Ocean as cargo. Yeah, as though it, as though it hadn't already begun when they started mm-hmm. genociding indigenous people. The race war has already started centuries ago. Black people are on the defensive. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's just kind of outlandish, this irrational fear that um that that so many people have of us. And it's it's based on anti blackness. So it's like when we talk about, you know, when as you were saying that, it just made me think of the We Can All Be White chapter, where I do talk about how, you know, anti blackness exists in black communities, anti blackness exists in non black. Uh, communities of color. Non-anti-blackness uh, e- exists in white communities, obviously, right? And so it's a it's a problem across the board for us where it's not just white people. It's not just white people's misconceptions or, or anti-blackness that we have to worry about. It's also, you know, when you walk in, it, it's also in Asian American communities. It's also in Middle Eastern communities. It's also in Jewish communities, you know, where because everyone under this colonial system feels the pressure to become as white as they can. And blackness is juxtaposed as the non-human, the the polar opposite of whiteness. Everyone's trying to disassociate from blackness. And one of the, one of the, one of the uh, primary ways that people can do that is by participating in anti-black violence in some way, whether that's, microaggressions or stereotypes or racial slurs or or whatever or up to you know some of the most violent which is what we see like with police violence so i i won't say too much more about this but it's just so like it's at the point where it's like i'm not even surprised anymore Mm. like when some video of someone like justin bieber comes out and he's like singing there's gonna be one less lonely n-word which i found out the other day is a real thing and i was like yeah Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, you're always going to find out that someone somewhere down the line probably did participate in something that is totally racist because it's how our society is structured. Mm. And wrapped up
2: in all of this is Christianity, specifically white evangelicalism in America. And you have this chapter and I've got uh, my mug here. I don't know if you can see it. Break up with white Jesus mug. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you have a a whole chapter devoted to this, um yes. and it's kind of a you know a cheeky slogan, and it's been a great conversation starter, like I have this sitting on my yes. desk, and people are like, "What's that?" and then you know, you can launch into a conversation from it, yes. but unpack that phrase for us a little bit and why it's so important to break up with white Jesus.
1: Yeah, so I write about how Jesus, how white Jesus was one of the white friends that I couldn't keep because I realized, um, I realized as I kept arguing with white Christians about this, that they would say things to me like, well, racism is not a priority Mm -hmm. to God or racial justice is not a part of the gospel or Jesus didn't lead any protests against Rome. He (laughs) let them kill him. You know, these are all real things that people would say to me. And it occurred to me one day um, that these same white people, you know, they they would assume that if they had a sick child, they could pray for that sick, jo- sick child and Jesus would care. Um, those same white people would pull up into the parking lot at Walmart and ask God for a good parking space. And they believed that <laughs> Jesus w- would care, right? But you're telling me that Jesus doesn't care when some when we watch someone like Fernando Castile bleed to death on Facebook Live in front of his girlfriend and their four-year-old daughter. Well, I can only assume from that that you believe that Jesus is a larger version of yourselves. Jesus must be a white, middle-class, male American concerned with white, middle-class, male American things. And I realized that's not a new idea, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's why why one of the earliest slave ships was actually named Jesus, uh, Jesus of Lubeck, you know? Um, They put Jesus' name on the side of one of these slave ships because the colonizers also began to depict Jesus or God as the sponsor of Mm -hmm. the slave trade. And during Jim Crow, we see all of these paintings of white Jesus. And um so I, I, I wrote about, you know, the idea that Jesus is white is to suggest that Jesus is committed to the to the project of uh, building, expanding, preserving white power. Right, and it reminds me of uh, uh, Walter Brueggemann's "The Prophetic Imagination," where he talks about, you know, the concept of God being free, right? Because um, in that oppressive system, in his in his in his interpretation of the situation in in Egypt in the Exodus narrative, is that the gods are not free to to mm-hmm. side with the marginalized? That the god that the gods are beholden to to the state. And I I feel like I saw something similar, you know, with what white Christians were telling me is that Jesus is not free to love black people or to to aid black people, to support black people in our um, our struggle for freedom. No, Jesus is beholden to whiteness. Jesus is, uh, you know, our guy. Mm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And um, I remember that morning where I realized that and I said, you know, like, I, I'm not going to church today if we're just, you know, if we're just worshiping some white guy in the sky who doesn't care about black people. But, you know, and also that morning I thought about, you know, the narratives that, that are actually, I think, in the biblical text, which show a God that does not like systemic oppression very much. You know, the, the Exodus narrative, I think, is telling us that, you know, and the fact that, you know, God really waged war, you know, on, on that oppressive system in order to free the Israelites.
2: And that's what's so strange is to uphold white Jesus, you have to ignore so many parts of the Bible, including most of Jesus. <laughs> <So> <laughs> all these folks that are like, just read the Bible, that's all you need, it interprets itself. Like, well, seems like you're skipping
1: some parts. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the Bible that they gave captives on on these work camps yeah. in America, they removed some of those texts. Like yeah. they took the Exodus story out right. of there. They didn't want they didn't want enslaved people to see this story about a God who fights against slavery. Um, and so that tradition continues.
0: The, the subtitle to to your book, uh, which, the t- which the title is "All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep," the subtitle is "Hope." and hard pills to swallow about fighting for black lives. Uh, you, you think about hope in a particular way. Can you t- talk yeah. a bit about that, where where hope sits for you? And
1: Of course. So for me, hope is more of a, a practice. Sometimes I compare it to a fire that we tend, right? Um, which means it can be started, <laughs> right? It can be started and it can be maintained. And I discovered that because, you know, about a year into, uh, lugging that boulder around, wearing the suit, speaking, writing, singing, all that stuff, I just got so burnt out because I thought that I had to be this very serious person all the time because yeah. we're dealing with death, right? And we're dealing with a nation that refuses to grieve, right? The, the fact that, you know, racism is the foundation and continues to endure. And I just, I mean, I was in such a deep depression about it. And one of my good friends, Paul in Florida, saw that, you know, he's not going to last this way. And he sent me a book called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. And Rebecca Mm -hmm. Solnit's book was the beginning of me Mm -hmm. having a new understanding of hope because she talked about how hope is dependent on uncertainty. Uh, She said that the optimist says that everything's going to be all right, no matter what we do. Uh, and pessimists say everything's going to be terrible no matter what we do. And both of those people exclude, uh, excuse themselves from action. Um and that was the beginning of me under of me coming to a new understanding of hope that it actually depends on me not really knowing how things will turn out but understanding that history is not a story that is happening to us it's one that we're writing together and that we mm-hmm. get a say we have a chance at influencing the chapter the next chapter or, or the chapter that we're in and we know this because whenever we hear about some atrocity in the world that you know some minority of bad people were able to organize and execute we always ask, well, what was everybody else doing at that time? You know, Mm -hmm. what were all the normal people doing at that time? Because we understand that if they had acted differently, then that chapter of history might have looked different. So um, that's where that began for me. And after reading Solnit's book, I resolved to always be reading a book about hope and to Mm -hmm. intentionally, intentionally pursue, you know, hope by reading the stories of people who have fought against oppression and won, even if they're little victories, right? Mm. And in doing that, it, it keeps it keeps me coming back to the fact that no matter how bleak things are mm. or they seem, I still see right now that there is a chance that we can create some change if we can organize those people and we can do the things that people have done
0: before. Well, I, I, thanks for that recommendation. The book that you're referring to is called Hope in the Dark. I just uh, looked it up here on Amazon. It rang a bell, and there's two books by that title. One written by someone named Craig Groeschel. That's not the one. And I would say, <laughs> not. No, Craig, I know Craig; he's a friend, but that's not the one. Don't order that one. This one by, Re, Re, by Rebecca. By Rebecca. <laughs> no. and I don't order on that one. Don't yeah, yeah, don't order that one. Uh, and, and I clicked on it, and then I'm, Amazon tells me hey, you ordered this book on January 15th, 2017. So somehow I ordered the book. <laughs> it, I forgot about it. And I almost again, which... uh, that's funny. Thank you, Amazon, for reminding me of what, what mm. I've previously done. That's because, so funny. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, that subtitle are untold histories and wild possibilities. That, that does feel like wherever someone's going to find their hope um, is important. The, the, a- activism is, um, by definition, unfinished work. Yeah, um, it's it, 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 as it's as opposed to a chore that you're going to go do, right? Where you can you sort of finish right. it and, and be done. The, the if we think it's tiring for us, you know, imagine having to tell the stories uh, to people 150, 230 years ago that we were still going to be having these conversations. They would have still done the work because there's no other option, right? right? What's right. the other right. option? to not do the work. So you have to stay healthy, and you have to stay alive, and you have to think about all the other things and life can still be very good and you can still laugh. And I know some of our temperaments go more easily that way, but it's hard to know how to do that stuff publicly, Andre. And I think you've, you're you're finding a way to do that and I think are a guide for people and a, you know, a journey mate for people on doing that. And I know that you're engaged with a lot of the other activists who write about these issues, people uh, especially from the Christian tradition of a similar generation Mm -hmm. and social context to yours. And people are trying to stay alive and, and trying to stay healthy. Do you have advice for people who are from, you know, the white experience in America about how they should engage? Because there is a lot of white people who don't know what to do, and, and I don't mean the people who are like, I don't get racism. What <laughs> the people who do get it, and they're like, oh my gosh, I just don't know, like. Do I, do I talk about it too much? Do I not talk about it enough? Right. Can I say it with a smile? Are people not taking me seriously? Like there's just right. a lot of insecurity in the world. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. because people are only afraid for uh, not good reasons. They just don't, they, they want to do no harm. You know, they want to only right. do right. what's good. And that causes a giant game of freeze tag to happen. And people feel real stuck. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts, yeah. uh, you know, for maybe the audience that you know are these friends you couldn't keep? There are some white friends you have kept. How do you talk to them about being a a journeyer with you on this work?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're going to make mistakes. And so, like, you just can't go for perfection, you know, with this. But the thing that I've been saying a lot lately is I've been thinking more about racism in its relationship to imperialism, in its relationship to colonialism. And I think that... I think that Mandela would agree with me, who is one of my favorite freedom fighters. You know, when he he talked about his time in Robben Island prison and he said that he realized that the oppressors were also oppressed in a way. You know, they were oppressed at least at the very least in the way in the way of their thinking and their common sense that allowed them to participate in the apartheid system. I feel a similar way about white people. I think that colonization is not just victimized, um, not just dehumanized black people through anti, like visceral, physical anti black violence. I think that colonization has also de- uh, dehumanized white people, um, by gutting them of empathy for black people, mm. by making them uh, feel comfortable with complicity in a system mm. of global violence, with blinding them. Not, I shouldn't say blinding, I've people really getting on me with ableist language, you know, um, but by pulling the veil over their eyes, right, about certain things, you know, obscuring the history, right, um, that's gaslighting too, mm. even though they're privileged by it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that white people need to look into the, look into what has been done to them. Through colonization, yeah. right? Because I don't think that you could actually look at yourself and say, you know, if you if you can look at someone or if you need, sorry, to see more people bleed to death in order for you to feel something, that's a problem that mm-hmm. should bother you. That should yeah. keep you up at night. You should be looking uh, for how you can be healed so that you can experience your full humanity and truly recognize the humanity in others. And I just think that white people need, I I don't know how you get it. (laughs) I don't know how you get this, but I think that white people need to start seeing this as their problem Mm -hmm. and start being really committed to healing from that.
0: Yeah, well, that is so well said. A lot of times people think that racism is an issue Primarily facing those who are bigoted against or the system works against, and racism is a is an oppressor problem right yeah yeah i 'm not taking away the, the pain at all i 'm saying that the where the problem lies where the, where the solution has to find itself, and that 's going to mean listening as we started the conversation when you said people in communities that are impacted also you know they know, so right. that means a kind of relational connection. That's hard to that's hard to get to, Mike. In the comments here, uh, somebody named Mike uh, commented that you know, look, there's a chicken and an egg question here about which framed what, and but fundamentally, there's a a human spiritual problem. I don't mean that in the religious sense, but a spirit to spirit problem right um, that, that we know repeats over and over in society, right and it, it shows yes. up in our families most domestic most abuse and violence of against another person in our country is done by someone who knows them yes. is in close contact, sometimes even a family member. So proximity is not enough to prevent the kind right. of hatred and violence and harm. We self-harm as human beings, so we'll even hurt mm-hmm. ourselves like right. our willingness to hurt uh, is boundless. So we have yeah. to find some other means to not uh, to not do that, especially on scale and mm. systemic societal bias and racism. Uh, just it is categorical, like it, it's 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 a crime against humanity, which is something greater than you know. That we we have to classify the levels of harm that human beings do to one another, and that one seems right. to really risen above. So, thank right. you for your for your good work on this. And any final comments you want to make about? the book or the work you're doing or where people can find you or what you're up to next or? Anything. Sure, sure. Um, you know, the thing that I always do like to
1: leave people with is, you know, I really do believe that it doesn't have to be this way. And that's partly why I wrote this book. You know, it's it's not just about, you know, me cutting off problematic people who refuse to listen and who, who refuse to move. It's really about delivering um, insight about building stronger movements, about building more strategic movements that can, that can move the needle forward. Because I'm concerned, um, especially after the global uprising for Black lives in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the ongoing fascist counter revolution that is emerging in response to that uprising, that people are continuing to operate on theories of change that will not work such as all we need to do to address race racism is sit down with people who have bad ideas and try to convince them (laughs) of better ideas. Like that may have a role, but those coffee table conversations are not going to redistribute the millions of dollars that are billions of dollars that are put into Uh, policing instead of into community care, you know? Um, So that's one, the theories of change, the strategies of change that won't work. And also engaging in protest alone and thinking that if we just get millions of people in the streets chanting the same thing at the same time, then the world will change, Uh, No, (laughs) we need more strategic movements. And it's the stakes are higher than ever because I talked to Erica Chenoweth the other day, who is the scholar who worked on the study I mentioned earlier, and she told me that we're losing more battles around the world through nonviolent civil resistance than we're winning and the reason why we're losing more than we're winning is not because nonviolence is inherently weaker than armed struggle but because people don't really know the the art they don't know the craft of uprising they don't have a large vocabulary of nonviolent tactics to employ we don't understand strategy we're not and we're not employing the strategies that are more disruptive like the boycotts and the strikes that actually put economic pressure on different different uh, uh, on different you know systems i write about this stuff in the book you know and i i know that it's not easy to see that from the cover or from the for from the title for people but the reason why it's couched in a memoir is because i don't think that if i'd just written a book about the nuts and bolts of nonviolent civil resistance that it would have made it to the shelf at target <laughs> so so i want for people right. to read this and to take it to heart and i hope that it makes you more active i hope that it makes you more hopeful i hope that it gives you practical insight about mm-hmm. how you can play a part in this, in the struggle for black freedom, and if you want to get in touch with me, like go to my website. It's AndreHenry.co. Every way to get in touch with me is there: social media, email list, all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's uh, really great to know you and uh, and to talk with you. And, and- same. Free to be part of all this.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. I uh, thank for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. And
0: uh, if you yep. head over
2: to the website, you can you can get one of these mugs.
0: So that's very true. That's true too. Yeah, we'll <laughs> throw a link. Uh, we'll throw a link into all those places, and you can pick up uh, <laughs> pick up all that stuff. All right, last question. Tell us about that microphone because that thing has been <laughs> a, full, a full character in the entire podcast. Oh my gosh, I don't well, know why it is that little gem. I don't know why it's
1: acting up, but you all know I'm a I'm a singer songwriter. I'm a musician. I know people like in are very in this capitalist common sense. They're like, don't tell people that first it's confusing. I'm like, well, fine, be confused. I'm a human being. (laughs) I got layers. I'm a parfait. Get over it, right? (laughs) So I um I'm a I'm a singer songwriter. And so like I basically just use my setup here for all these interviews and stuff. So what you see, I have a Neumann TLM one oh three in here. It's a it's a really good microphone, you know, um for cutting vocals and stuff. One of my favorites that I have And around it is what is called the Chaotica Eyeball Which basically acts as a sound treatment It's like my my bedroom's not treated But when I sing into this microphone It really deadens all of the bouncing, you know off of the walls that it would do so you can't mm-hmm. tell that i'm not in the studio when i'm recording yeah
0: so so that big f- thing we see there is a cover over a microphone that's on the inside and is creating a context for your sound in there it's like exactly. a giant windscreen or
2: yeah exactly <laughs> it's like an exactly. isolation booth just right around.
0: exactly like exactly well, it's... Uh, love it. I know, some, no, something to look for this afternoon, because I love that kind of stuff so much. <laughs> All right, I, hey, pay, hey, I'll f- uh, pick up the book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. It's more than you uh, might imagine. Yes, it's memoir, but it's also, as Andre said, a call for how we can move forward, One one of the pathways. And we want to applaud that the way forward is a way of love and that way of love needs to include not harming and killing one another and so just one of the things i think uh, that we need to need to to put on the list of demands that we have for one another and for a future of society absolutely thank you bye everybody all right I'll, we'll uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow